like to welcome everybody to the session. Uh, the last session ran a little bit late, so if you could uh, grab a seat that's close to you and get settled in. Um, we'll get started here in about a minute since we've already lost four or five, and I know that uh, our panelists are all going to have a lot to say, and we want to get started. Thanks for coming. Okay, as we're getting settled in, good afternoon. On behalf of the Texas Tribune and the University of Texas at Austin, I'm very happy to welcome you to the second annual Texas Tribune Festival and to our public and higher education legislative preview panel. So if you don't want to see that, you're in the wrong place. Um, and I'm happy to, uh, to, to welcome, and I'll give you a little bit more of an introduction uh, in a moment. Um, on the far end, Senator Judith Sapparini. Representative Dan Branch, Senator Dan Patrick, and Representative Dan Huberty. Now, before we, we get started, as people are settling in, I want to thank the sponsors of all the legislative preview events that are featured in each of the six tracks of the festival. Um, these panels are presented by AT&T and supported by the Texas Construction Association. So please give them a hand, even though they're not as publicly known as these folks. <coughs> I'm going to scoot around here because I feel like I've got my back to all you folks over here. Um, though most of you are familiar with our guests, I just want to give you a very brief introduction for each person. I'm going to run through these really quickly since we're running late. Senator Judith Sapparini is in her seventh term representing Senate District 21 based in Laredo. For our purposes, she's chair of the Senate Higher Education Committee and co-chair of the Joint Oversight Committee on Higher Education Governance, Excellent, Excellence and Transparency, the worst name for a committee ever. Um, <laughs> Representative Dan Branch is in his fifth term representing House District 108 in Dallas. He is the chairman of the House Higher Education Committee and also serves as co-chair of that joint long-named committee. Um, Senator Dan Patrick is in his first term representing Senate District 7 based in Houston. Um, after being elected in 2006 and is currently vice chair of the Senate Education Committee. And Representative Dan Huberty is in his first term representing District 127 in Houston and Harris County. He sits on the House Education Committee and is on the Joint uh, Committee on Public School Finance. Um, our panel is going to run 60 minutes, uh, now about 55, including a 15 to 20 minute period of Q&A. Um, please remember to turn off or silence your cell phones, but as Evan Smith has established as the protocol. If you're not going to turn it off, please tweet. And the hashtag is TribuneFest. <laughs> um, I'd like to start fairly broadly by asking each panelist what you see as the point of departure for public education in the upcoming session. Um, you know, maybe start by saying sort of where we left off at the end of last session, uh, kind of a, think of it a TV season starting again, you know, Bring us up to speed and then tell us what's coming. Um, where do we leave off? And, and in your view, what's going to be on deck? What are the highest priorities for the beginning of this session? Senator Zafferini, let's start with you, please. Thank you. Well, at the end of the last session, we were debating the budget. And at the beginning of the next session, we will begin by debating the budget. The budget will always be the overarching factor in any discussion because it matters not what legislation we pass, if we don't fund it, we're not serious about it. So looking at the economy at hand right now, how the economy will be when we convene, looking backward to 2011 and the cuts that were made and which should be restored will be at the top of the agenda. 
Beyond that, we will discuss many specific issues in higher education. I hope that whatever that issue may be, whether it is accessibility, accountability, affordability, efficiency, transparency, productivity, the list goes on and on. Whatever the issue should be, we should attach it to and relate it to excellence because that should be our goal. Within those broad parameters in higher education, we will look at specifics such as outcomes-based funding. And Representative Branch, my counterpart in the House, certainly has taken the lead on that. Uh, tuition, basically related to affordability for students and their families, will be at the top of the agenda. And there will be many, many uh, perspectives about how we can control costs for the students. Efficiency, certainly in terms of productivity for the faculty members, for the students, graduation rates. Again, it is a broad, broad list of topics. Specifically, we will be looking at a bill that will address state tuition for undocumented students. Senator Birdwell has told me that he will introduce that bill, so we will be considering it in higher education. But the list is very, very long. Before we move on to, to, to ask Representative Branch about that, let's uh, Governor Perry kind of made some news last night in a certain way in his views. How many people were at Governor Perry's interview with Evan Smith last night? Okay, well, to you know, after he talked about Satan, he <laughs> raised the issue of, you know, he, he, he sent a signal, it seemed to many people, that he did not expect a bill on, on tuition for, for the children of undocumented aliens to reach his desk. And I think a lot of people are reading the tea leaves on that right now and say that he doesn't really want to mess with the issue, frankly, very much. Well, What's your read of that? The signal he sent is that he doesn't want that bill to reach his desk. And I expect Governor Perry to use his charm so that he will be understood and that everyone will understand his position on that particular issue. Well, for the people that were there last night, I think you know a lot about his charm since he seemed to talk to you more than he talked to Evan last <laughs> night. <laughs> so, Representative Branch, what, what do you see coming up in the, in the session? What's, what's on the agenda? Well, I, I think, uh, obviously, it, when you're talking Texas and you're talking legislative session, then education is, is always a big issue. It is the issue. It's the biggest part of our budget. Uh, Senator Zaffarini talked about, the, you know, it starts with the budget, it ends with the budget. Obviously, that's a critical element. We, we obviously have some litigation going on in the back, as a backdrop that will uh, have actually moved a little further along, we anticipate, in the process by the time we arrive here in January, those of us who are fortunate to be reelected, and so we don't want to, I don't want to be presumptive on, on any of that, but those who do come back, uh, clearly the issues, whether it's, whether it's the 5 million plus students in our K through 12 system, or whether it's the approximately 1.4 to 1.5 as it's rising in a uh, million in, in, in higher ed, um, the, to me, the central issue in, an, in a knowledge-based economy as we look forward is, are we going to have an educated workforce in this state? And obviously, we have some real challenges on that front. So whether it comes down to you know, fixing uh, developmental education in the higher ed space or whether it, it means having a, a, um, a better focus on accountability and the mix of proper funding levels in K-12 and, and the proper level of accountability and what that looks like, uh, th those are really important issues because they drive the number. I mean, when you basically look at these uh, tranches of first grade through uh, uh, the, the hopefully the, only the fourth year of higher education, occasionally a few victory laps. But um, it, there's, there, you can look at these things and say, hey, there's, there's, there's 350,000 kids in one tranche or 400,000 kids, and at some point, uh, are we moving them along? Are, are, when they get to eighth or ninth grade, are they now all of a sudden not continuing in the system? 
And so we have some serious challenges uh, in addition to the other things we're going to be focused on, whether that's water or power or transportation, healthcare, a lot, a lot of big issues. To me, the central issue that helps you solve a lot of these other ones, are we going to educate our youth and are we going to have policies in place like we tried to push uh, for more outcomes, you know, incentivize the completion? I think we finally have, you see in education, this notion of completion. Whether you're talking about high school, complete. Uh, what are you doing to complete? Make sure the quality's up, but we need the quantity. We need people completing, and then we need them being college-ready and showing up. And when, when we get to our space, the, the, it's not just Texas, but around the country, there's a whole focus on when are people completing? Are they going to get a credential? Whether it's an associate's degree, whether it's, it's moving off into um, a, a workforce and having a certificate. Uh, some people like to talk about that. This is not a one-size-fits-all. We need to have people either workforce-ready with certain skills, uh, for a digital economy, or we need to have people uh, finish their either associate's degree or bachelor's degree or go on to get uh, graduate. And we can't have, we can't afford any longer for someone to take six, seven, eight years. We, in, the, in the broad aspect, you may have some people, individual cases where people are working and they're going to take longer. We, we understand that. But for the most part, we need to move people along. Why? Because we've got people coming up that need those scholarships. So we have to, people have to be much more efficient with getting people to complete four years, uh, and, and they need to then be up or out. Uh, if they're going to do more and take more time, then they have to really justify that. And it has to be justified not just um, to, uh, to, to their own situation and to their own families, but if they're taking taxpayer dollars, they need to justify why they're staying longer uh, to, so, so that we can uh, answer to taxpayers. So I think the combination of good policy decisions will we'll, we'll pick up where we left off. Are we going to go to fully go uh, further to outcomes uh, in, in higher ed? What are we going to do in accountability? How are we going to find the right balance of not teaching to the test but also having learning objectives that make sense and that people are actually college ready? How do we deal with the developmental ed bubble that we have? People that are showing up are taking, going to community colleges or four-year institutions and, they, and they're not getting credit and then they're dropping out because they, they lose their motivation. Can we do a better job of breaking that developmental ed piece down and getting people moving, getting them credit concurrently while they fix maybe their issue in algebra or wherever they're having the shortfall? So I, I think uh, these are the issues we ought to be focused on. These are the ones that help fix our other problems and these are the ones that are going to keep our state uh, either in the forefront and an exciting place to be, where everyone, where, where we're getting 1,200 people a day in inbound migration, or, or are we, at some point, are we going to start falling behind and people are going to say, hey, this is, uh, you can't get skills, you can't get an educated workforce here, and capital and jobs and businesses are going to start moving away from us. I think this is, we're, we're at a crossroads on that. We'll talk a little bit, I want to talk, follow up on a lot of that. Senator Patrick, what do you think is coming up? You, you, you've sent a couple of signals, perhaps. Well, we, uh, I want to follow up on what Dan said, because he's right. If we don't address these issues... You've got to make sure which Dan you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> I haven't said anything yet. So. Okay, all right, good. Chairman Branch, um, we ha if we don't address these issues, we're going to lose a generation. Our state demographers tell us by 2040, we will double in population. If you, add, if you go back to about 2,000, we're going to add about another 20 million people. And that sounds like a long time, but that's 28 years. Uh, 14 sessions. We cast about 4,500 votes each of us over a two-month period. So 28 years is 14 sessions. We vote two months a session in essence. Uh, we have 28 months to solve these problems of a generation that could be lost. 
in poor performing schools. We need to look at education in Texas, not K through 12 and, and community college and four year universities. It needs, we need to look at the entire picture. Because if we don't do the right job in elementary and middle, they won't be prepared for high. If we don't do the right job in high school, they won't be prepared to go on to get a certificate from a community college or four-year degree. We have over 8,000 campuses in the state of Texas. 550 of those are rated unacceptable. About 320,000 students, primarily in the inner city, go to those schools. Condoleezza Rice said at the Republican convention uh, last month, she said, this is a country that's not about where you're from, but where you're going, unless I know your zip code. If I know your zip code, I have a good idea of how far you can go. Because if you live in a zip code where you're forced to go to one of those 550 unacceptable schools, your chances of success are limited in life. We have, in the Dallas Independent School District, according to one school board member I spoke with, almost a 50% dropout rate. In the, in the Houston Independent School District, about a 30% dropout rate. And you can move the numbers around and make them look better or worse, but if you look at the Latino and the African-American community, particularly in the male students, that number is even higher. What kind of state will we be? What kind of republic will we have if we do not have an educated workforce? Government does four things. We educate, medicate, regulate, and incarcerate. And history proves to us that if you don't have an education, you're more likely to live off the government you're more likely to have medical issues and more likely to be in jail. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about school choice. Uh, I'm not going to be specific today because we're working on that, but we have to give families who are trapped in poor performing schools a way out. And we have to give students with disabilities, particularly our, our autistic community, a way out if that school can't help them. Uh, no one should stand and insist on a family staying in a school that can't meet those student needs. We have to look at entire school districts. We have to look at the testing. Are we preparing students for the future? Only 22%, according to the Greater Houston Partnership, 22% of eighth graders go on to have some type of degree, a two or four year degree. And then we have to prepare, as Dan said, Chairman Branch, to my left, career and college. Because today, according to David Anthony with Raise Your Hand and former superintendent of Sci Fair, we have more students with a four year degree in community colleges than we have students with a two-year degree because they're getting their four-year degree and they're not qualified to do anything. So this is time for innovation. Uh, we cannot kick the can down the road two and four and six more years. And so as I look at this session coming up, Senator Zaffarini talked about the dollars and those are always important. But the dollars have to be matched with the responsibility of a school district to educate a child. And the last thing I would say on this, we go to great lengths great lengths to reach out for a child in a poor district in an, in an unacceptable school if they can play football or basketball. And we will give them choice of any college they want to go to and we'll pay for it all. But how about that kid that sits on the steps next door who doesn't play sports but could be a great teacher or a musician or a lawyer or a business person or a police officer? What about that kid who says, what about me? I just want to learn. That's our challenge, to reach out to any child and any family who feels the schools are not providing for them. Thank you. He's a fundamentally unathletic kid in school. That really warmed my heart. <laughs> um, uh, Representative Huber, do you come with, to this from a, an interesting perspective? We were talking about it before this as, as somebody who served on a school board and somebody who's 
come into the process with kind of fresh eyes. What do, what do you see coming up? You know, it's interesting. Um, I uh, have been on both sides of lawsuits with the state. I've actually sued the state, and now I'm being sued. So I get to, I get to experience both sides of that. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting to watch that. You know, when you talk about where we ended up last session, where I think we're going to go, um, make no mistake about it, the, the lawsuits that are there, and there's six different ones, and they're being combined into one lawsuit, um, and they're all different perspectives. Uh, everybody's trying to protect their backyard. Everybody's trying to protect themselves. And that was the interesting thing that I found about last session. Um, you always knew when the numbers were coming out of what your school district was going to get because everybody was sitting at their computer on the run rates and looking, what did my district get? What did my schools get? And we have to change that mentality because if we don't do it, we're never going to get anything done. And, and we're never going to make it um, a, a reasonable effort to make sure that we're properly funding education. And I don't mean just throwing more money at the problem. I think it's, you know, we've talked about, you know, uh, efficiency. Those are, those are going to be important things as we go forward. Uh, we have in the House a, a pretty unique uh, issue going on right now. Um, the Public Education Committee um, has uh, uh, been basically dismantled. We lost our chairman. We lost our vice chairman. Uh, we, we're losing Randy Weber maybe to uh, Washington, so they need to watch out for Randy when he gets there. Uh, but uh, plus we're losing several other very experienced members. And so, but the good news is I think we've got some people that are coming in uh, to the House uh, that really care about education. Uh, and hopefully they're going to roll up their sleeves and, and they're going to work on it. Some of the things, obviously, what we're hearing out there is that, you know, we had to make some dramatic cuts uh, in, in the budget last session. And, uh, you know, the biggest issues, as I saw it, you know, the, the, the um, House Research Organization did a study this past session, and they talked about it. And the single largest issue was that we, we didn't get about $18 billion in federal money. For, for those of us that are fairly conservative, you know, we want the federal government to stop spending money. So they obviously started with Texas and didn't give us any. So, uh, you know, we, so we said, okay, so we have to come up with some real solutions. Uh, and, we, and, and it was kind of the perfect storm. You know, the, the lawsuits back in 2006, uh, serving on a school board, and I ended up being president, we struggled with it because of the hold harmless provisions. And I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but in a perfect storm, when you're in a recession and your sales tax goes down and your property taxes go down and foreclosures go down, you don't have the revenue. And that's exactly what happened to us last session. And so we were trying to figure out how do we create the proper balance. And so, you know, we visited uh, a little bit with the speaker and talked to him about what we think we'd like to try and work on for next session, uh, specifically related to, to school and school finance. You know, we, we need to really focus on enrollment growth. Uh, that's important for us because we've got eighty to 90,000 kids a year that are coming in. We've got to make sure that we take care of those kids. Uh, we've got the deferral that we're going to try and deal with. We think we're going to have some, possibly have some resources to be able to deal with, deal with that. Um, you know, the, the school finance lawsuits, you know, those are ongoing, and so we obviously know there's going to be a, a resolution on that. What that is, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, it, it was interesting, uh, when, when I was the president of the school board, uh, David Thompson is our, was our attorney, and I guess he's, he's still the attorney for the school district, and, and uh, so we were starting the process of going to sue the state, and we held off, just kind of wait and see what happened. And so, when they were filing the lawsuit, the superintendent for, for Humble called me and said, is it okay if I'm the named uh, plaintiff in the lawsuit? And I said, no, it's not. So I don't want to have uh, my, our name out there. But, but I understand it, and I, and I get it. But, you know, I want to uh, piggyback on something what Senator uh, Patrick said, is that, you know, 60%, roughly 60% of the kids that are go to public schools in the state of Texas are economically disadvantaged. In the same area, you know, roughly... 
67% uh, uh, of the children are minorities. And so we have to look at all our children. Go back to what I said earlier, which is when we get our run rates and we start looking at those things, we have to be more uh, realistic in, in how we're going to really solve those problems as we go forward. Uh, but, but we also had the, big, the one big issue that you, that you saw last session that I think is going to be a big deal because there's a lot of people that are running on education this time. And there's a lot of candidates that are out there. And I always tell them, you know, you know campaigning is about re rhetoric and governance is about results. So be careful what you wish for when you get here because you're going to have to take some tough votes this session on how you're going to deal with things. Uh, but we're hearing a lot of stuff. And we had a bill last session, HB 500, that dealt with the assessments um, and the EOCs, which is the end of course um, uh, testing. And I think you're going to see some of those issues uh, come, come, come about again. But we just have to be smarter in how we're using our resources. Well, you, kind of, you, you raised the, the issue of you know, governing versus running for office. And I was going to save this to the end, but let's just speak to the politics really quickly. I think at the, at the end of last session with the passage of HB3 and then the overall sort of funding decisions about education, I think it was very much in the air that the test of that model would be the next election cycle, that over the course of the biennium, parents would look at what was happening in their schools and would either reward or punish legislators as they ran for re-election. I'm wondering how, you've, how you feel that stands right now, both individually, what are you hearing from your constituents about public education and the aftermath of the approach the legislature took, and what do you think, how do you think it's playing out at the broader level as we're seeing post-Labor Day the electoral cycle unfold? Dan, you take that. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Which? <laughs> why, why, do we, why do we start with Senator Patrick? I, I have to tell you before the answer that the tweets so far have all been very accurate. We're all being summarized beautifully. <laughs> and and Reeve Hamilton, where are you? He tweeted that we should be called Z and the Dance. It <laughs> sounds like a cheap, cheesy cover band. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he stole my joke, but he does that all the time. Well, it. In terms of the election, I, I don't know that I saw anything specifically tied to that in terms of people winning or losing. Maybe there's anecdotally you could find a race or two. Uh, but I think the folks back home, whether they have children in school or not, um, they looked at the cuts. You know, there were these headlines, 100,000 teachers are going to be laid off. It didn't happen. Uh, there was about a 3 or 4% cutback uh, in the workforce. Um, some districts received about a 4% overall cut. Some districts a 7 uh, percent overall cut, and I think a lot of uh, uh, homeowners and, and business owners and just folks said, look, you know, we're all tightening our belt. We're all having to find ways to be more efficient. And so I don't know that there was a tremendous amount of sympathy from a lot of folks to say that the schools shouldn't share in, this isn't, you know, this, we all have to share in making this work. Again, as, as, as Dan said, Almost half our budget, uh, depending if you want to use higher ed on all funds, is education. 25% uh, of our budget's Medicaid. 10% is public safety. So, you know, 85% of the budget's education, Medicaid, and public safety. So when you have a downturn like we had last, se last session, about $20 billion, you have a choice. You either raise revenues, which are taxes, and no one wanted those, or you reduce expenses. And I think that we did... Um, I think we did a good job overall. We, we made uh, cuts, but they weren't too deep. We gave schools more flexibility, and uh, that's what we have to do. We just had a hearing last week in education, uh, and, and some great testimony from some of our great superintendents around the state. And we, look, we have some great public schools 
And we have some great teachers and principals. But out of 1,064 school districts, they don't all go up and hit a home run. And that goes back to my point. Uh, you don't want to be in one of those that, that's uh, striking out all the time because that's your future. You know, that's your future. You, know, you, know, you don't want to hear top down, this is the way we have to do it. This is my future. I don't want to be in this low-performing schools. But, but what I heard from some of our great superintendents, like Daniel King, uh, who's a great superintendent, he just wants flexibility. He wants more control. And I'm, I'm a real local control guy, although I call it local responsibility. You want control, you're responsible for it. If you succeed, we're going to reward you. If you fail, then you might want to move on because those kids pay the price when you fail. Senator Zeffirini, what is your constituent management mail system looking like? Are you hearing from constituents on this? Yes, and basically they're complaining about the cuts. And I think that the reaction will vary regionally. So that the kind of reaction we hear perhaps in South Texas and along the border and the rural areas will differ dramatically from what we hear in the metropolitan areas. So what I'm hearing is complaints about the cuts. And of course, we cut public education $5.4 million, um, billion dollars. Thank you, Dan. Dan, Dan. And I'm particularly, <laughs> this Dan, <laughs> Chairman Branch, <laughs> I'm particularly concerned about those cuts to education in general, but specifically public education and early childhood education. Because when we look at PK through 16 and beyond, we have to focus on every single level of education, and cuts at any level are hurtful. But when we look at those cuts, we have to tie them into accountability and productivity back to excellence. And what we are learning now is how those cuts impacted the school districts. I'm hearing from teachers who are complaining about not having enough supplies, about the classroom sizes being at large, about not having enough teachers, about not attracting enough qualified people who want to teach. And it's not just a matter of the impact of the people who are there. It's the impact of the people who could be there if they were to receive higher salaries. Because Whatever we agree or disagree on is besides the point. If we talk about teacher salaries, I hope that we all agree that our teachers should be paid better. And that is one of the most serious complaints I hear, not only from the teachers, but from the parents, and from the parents who want the best possible teachers, the best possible teachers for their children. And that starts in early childhood education. If we do a good job with our little ones, they will be better prepared in first grade. They are more likely to succeed and to go on to a higher education to be more productive citizens. So I'm hoping that when we look at the budget anew, that we look at the funds that are available, that we use the rainy day fund to go backward and look at what needs to be restored and what cuts were made last time that still have an impact on us, and especially the areas that were underfunded, such as Medicaid, that were deliberately underfunded, payments that were deferred, that we use the rainy day fund for that, and then use the increased sales tax revenue to look at the needs of the people of Texas, especially in education. Mr. Chairman Branch, what are you hearing? Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm hearing it. I agree with the senator that I think there's going to be some di different perspectives from rural versus urban, and I think there's going to be, depending on school districts, uh, my sense is that we, ha as, as uh, was mentioned, we had to deal with the education budgets. It's the biggest part of the budget. And so, uh, any, like a school district where, where personnel costs are the, significantly the biggest part of any budget, you have to deal with the, the, the area. If you're going to make significant cuts, you've got to deal with that. So I, I guess for me, I think we've got to keep our eye on the per capita notion. You know, when, when you're talking about uh, the growth that we have in this state, 
you've got to really keep your eye on the ball. Are we, are we successfully managing growth? And uh, so, so let, me, let me come back to that. But I w- my sense is of what I'm hearing is, is that some school districts, if a school district was already lean, then um, it was uh, probably punished and hurt uh, uh, too much. You know, we, we probably got to the bone on the school district that it was already lean. And that's the unfortunate thing. On the other hand, you hear a lot of sc- about a lot of school districts that um, sort of had crocodile tears, and and they gave three percent pay increases, and their and they had a they had their own rainy day fund. They had a reserve fund that was, uh, you know, rather rather uh, uh, high relative to what TEA calls for. And so in those in those instances, um, you got the sense that, uh, that they they didn't get hurt very much at all. And because uh, if you can afford to give pay increases across the board like that, then um, in, a, in a year where everybody else was taking cuts and no one was giving increases, uh, salary increases, and, and you know that, that sort of flies in the face of uh, saying that that you were that there were somehow uh, damaged. So, so I, I'd go back to look. The focus has to be on uh, these 90,000 new kids of, of basically a, a Fort Worth Independent School District lands on our state every September. And so we have to make sure we are managing to uh, have an adequate resources going out to our student populations. And whether you look at it as an average daily attendance or a weighted uh, average daily attendance basis, you've you got to make sure that the, the resources are out there. I think that's the challenge for us this session. Do you think, I want to I come back and follow you up on that, but I do want to follow up a little bit on just one aspect of that. Do you think, um, do you think the rainy day funds, quote-unquote, that the districts have, should be judged on a different criterion than the, the rainy day fund at the state level? Because it sounds like we did everything we could to protect the rainy day fund at the state level and then asked the school districts that had rainy day funds to spend their money. Is that okay? Yeah, well, we spent a little of ours, too, as you right. remember. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, somewhere around $3.1 billion. So uh, I, th- I think it's, you know, I think this is sort of shared responsibility. Remember, uh, Independent school districts. If you go back and look at the the history, right? I mean, this the, the Constitution still puts the place the the the, the responsibility on the on the shoulders of the legislature, and so uh, ISDs and I'm, I'm I also believe in local control, but uh, ISDs are, are are basically delegatees of of the people of Texas through their legislature to manage uh, local education. And so uh, at some point, I think this is a shared responsibility, but you know, uh, Representative Patrick has, uh, he, he might be able to speak more specifically to the local uh, reserve balances. Huberty. And, he, and you're next, so you're on. Well, I'm so, sorry, Dan Huberty. No, that's no, okay. Uh, Just call him Dan. Dan. Just Dan's fine. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting. I'm going to try and bifurcate this if I can in a couple different ways. But the, the, the fund balance issue is, is something that, you know, was, was he- heavily debated. And, and, you know, obviously, we hear, what, what I heard, we hear everybody has said, spend all the rainy day fund. We're not going to do that. You know, I tell people, I said, you know, you have, we, have a, we have a major problem in, in the state of Texas going into the next session with Medicaid. We've got to deal with that problem. And that's how, you know, those are some of the resources. Uh, but, but we held firm on that because we knew we had a problem. You would never, not a single person in this room would spend every single dollar of their savings account. You wouldn't do that. Nobody would do that. Yet... It's good rhetoric. It's good campaign fodder, and and people criticize you for that, and that's okay. I, I'm I'm willing to take the heat on that. That's that's fine with me. 
when you talk about fund balances for school districts, and, and I'm very familiar with this because I was on a school board uh, when we started, uh, we had an 8% fund balance, and now they've, they've grown to beyond where the um, uh, TEA requirements are at. But you have school districts out there that have 100% fund balances. 100%. $100 million school district budget with $100 million, and they're coming to the school. And and right. I'm telling you, I'm not going to tell you who it was, but they were in, in front of our committee last session. And they're telling us that they need more money, and I happened to point out to the superintendent that you have a 100% fund balance. Can you explain that? Um, and that's taxpayer dollars that we're talking about. Fund balances right now, uh, end of uh, 2011, we don't have 2012 numbers yet, $11.5 billion. Fund balances in the state of Texas in school districts raised by a billion dollars in 2011. A billion dollars. It's huge numbers. And so what that has to be part of our solution. And we're not saying to, to, to our school districts, and, and if you talk to my friends that are on the school boards, part of the problem is, is that there's a TEA requirement, which then impacts your uh, ratings and your, and, your, and your financial performance and, and your audit and everything else because you have to have certain requirements in there. Um, you know, we need to work with the school districts to give them some flexibility uh, in that so that they're able to, to, to handle that. And then you've got the other issue, which is that, you know, we've got 250 school districts, roughly, right now that are at the cap. They're at $1.17. They have nowhere to go. Uh, and I've got three of those school districts in my district alone. And what I hear from them is, Dan, we need help. We need help because our community is willing to pay for our children, yet we can't do anything about that. How do we deal with that? And so that's the equity argument that we're talking about. Um, and you've had huge disparities uh, across the state of Texas uh, in equity. And I'm not talking about a school district with 30,000 kids compared to a 5,000 kid. I've compared districts with 5,000 kids and 5,000 kids. And what I find interesting, and there's a lot of school districts that are out there um, that, that, are, that, are being, that, we're, that, that we're dealing with, um, that we have to make sure that we're, that we're, that we're, that we're being equitable in, in, in how we deal with that. And there's one other thing that I'm hearing out there on the, on the, on the road and spent a lot of time. Um, you know, my mom is a teacher. My grandfather was a teacher. It's very important. I understand that, you know, that, that we have to have responsibility. But the biggest thing is not the, we tried to get teachers a 13 check, or retired teachers a 13 check last session. That didn't happen. Um, but the TRS care is a big deal. That's one of the other big things that we're, that we're dealing with and that we need to make sure that we take care of our retirees. We have responsibility, in my opinion, to make sure that we take care of the, of the, of the people that taught our children and, and help make Texas a great state. And so when you, when you have a 75-year-old retired widower that says, Dan, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to have health insurance. What am I going to do? You know, that's something that I think we, we as legislators have a responsibility to deal with, um, and we have to deal with that uh, next session. And I, I plan on working on that next session to fix that. Just to follow up very quickly, I, I represent, like all of us, a number of school districts, and I have one school district, and I met with the superintendent, and because they're a Robin Hood district, their money, in essence, you, you know, not specifically, but goes to another district, and the district next door uh, was able to give a 5% across-the-board pay raise. Uh, and they had been a district complaining they didn't have enough money. And meanwhile, the Robin Hood district could only give a 2% pay raise, and that superintendent says to me, so this is fair? So, I, so our people are taxed to send money to another district. They give a raise two and a half or two times as much as mine, and they come and raid my teachers. So... This, long before any of us uh, got here, this, this education funding mechanism that we have um, was created, and it's been patched and repatched, and it's a mess. And when you can't look someone in the eye, a parent, and explain to them why this district gets 5500 a child, and this district gets 4800 a child, and this district gets 6200 a child, and they're all within 
40 miles of each other. That's a problem. And of course, you know, again, we're in the courts, and but I, I think the courts this time are also going to demand that we look at efficiency. And you know, that's what I'm talking about. Is you know, it's not just money. You have to produce results. And and besides the choice issue, charter schools. We passed it out of the Senate twice. Safarini, uh, thank you, has, has, has been on the bill with it, and we got to get that out of the. We have to lift the cap. It's been the same since 2000. Uh, we have to look at virtual schools. The McAllen School District, Senator, I don't know if you know this. They just ordered a, a an iPad and an iPod for every one of their 26,000 students. They're moving, and, and they did it by finding $3 million in their budget because they're leasing those. It's a four-year contract for $12 million. So every elementary student will have a, an iPod because their hands are too small, and every other student's going to have an iPad uh, because they, they, they scraped and found some savings. There are all types of things, but think of the world. When we talk about only 30% of our teachers have a math degree who teach math, roughly. About a third who teach science have a science degree. Think about the fact that a student can go online and see the best teacher from the University of Houston or Texas or MIT online for free to teach math or to teach science or whatever that subject may be. So there's so many things we can do. We must begin to become innovative. There's a great saying that I heard in, in education committee one session. When kids come into the classroom, they mentally power down. They are in a digital fast speed world and we slow them down with a heavy textbook and heavy learning uh, that very often goes back to a, a day in the past. So we've got to be innovative. That's how we make the money, the efficiency, and that's how we have a good outcome. Uh, Senator Zaffarini, before Professor we go to Q&A. Professor you asked at the beginning where we left off and where we would begin. Those are the issues that we left off discussing, and those are the issues that we will begin discussing, specifically public school finance and vouchers. I have been against vouchers as long as I have been in the Texas legislature, and that debate will be before us for sure. It definitely will be before us. But what I think is that it will be addressed differently this time, that it will not be addressed as a single issue, but within the context of how all schools will be impacted and all schools can be imp uh, improved. Because vouchers may work in one area, but not in another. How would vouchers work in a rural area, sparsely populated area, for example, where there are no charter schools, where there are no private schools? There's a difference. This state is very large, very complex, and we can't take a single issue and address it in such a way that we provide these rigid, inflexible policy decisions that will have to be implemented statewide because they will not be implemented equally and fairly statewide. They cannot. And the very first difference is between the rural and sparsely populated areas and the metropolitan areas. And then second, the property wealthy from the property poor. As long as I've been in the Texas Senate, we've been discussing the same issues. I hope we will be more successful and productive and more fair in 2013. Hopefully we can work together. And solve we certainly problem. will. We've only been able to scratch the surface of this, and I want to I open it up to questions, but I want to be a little bit self-serving and invite you all. Some of you have come. I have a speaker series at UT. I'd love to talk to all of you more about this. You're all invited. Thank you. And uh, you, you know where to find me, and I know we'll where to find back. you. Okay. So thank you very much. We're going to open for Q&A. And so, uh, please, we're going to be pretty tight on time, so uh, questions rather than statements, and th think about it as, a, you know, imagine you're asking this in a tweet. Uh, I'm going to start over here where the line is long. I haven't checked in Sir. our tweets lately. I'm Turner from the University of Houston. Uh, uh, we need to make this mic hot, please. Right here. Make sure it's on. Let's okay. check our tweets. Oh, is it on? Hold up. All right. I think it's on. 
Um, although I appreciate student representation on the Board of Regents, I was curious if you guys would be in favor of changing, changing Texas state law and allowing uh, students to vote on the Board of Regents. Uh, the question is, even though he appreciates the fact that there is a student regent, there's a student regent, he wondered if you'd support giving the students a vote on the Board of Regents. I'll, t I'll take it. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's uh, the, the addition. I, and I was there with uh, Representative Rose when we put that on. I think Senator Wentworth in, in your, you all's chamber. So I think that's been a healthy addition. I think it's really good to get that perspective. And uh, I, I'd be happy to give a, a student a vote. I think we do need to, um, it's a little bit different. I know a lot of private institutions uh, have student regents now, and they, and they have a vote. Many times the uh, private institutions have a much, much larger uh, board of trustees or regents, and therefore uh, it's, not, it's not as dilutive. In our case, we have uh, boards that we've narrowed over the years down to nine, and so when you, when you do add a, a vote like that, then you could have a, a, an impasse, say, ten, five, and five. So I think we just, we just need to think through that process, uh, but in terms of the student uh, voice, I'm all for it, and, and, and extending that in terms of a vote, uh, I, I'm for it in concept. We just got to make sure we, we would have to work out, and are we, are we ready to um, um, either, either dilute, or, or is the legislature ready to expand all those boards to keep the nine votes that we have now? Senator Zapparini? Well, it's a very complex issue, and I was so proud when that particular issue, the student regent, was amended to one of my bills, and then later was passed as a singular bill, and I was very happy about that. The issue of student regents voting is more complex than that. Recently, I met with some students, and I gave them some ideas about how they can increase their effectiveness regarding that issue, and I believe that all the students who really want a student regent to vote have to answer those particular questions, and they include, such as, number one, what would be the student regent's qualification for voting? How would that student be prepared to make the same kinds of decisions that the other regents are prepared to make because of their experience in, in business and in education and their fields of, of expertise? So you need to answer that question, number one. And then number two, the issue of how the students are selected, because that continues to be controversial. There is a law in place that, that expresses a specific procedure for student regents to be selected and appointed. And I believe we need to go back and refine that process and address it anew. There is some support for a student regent voting at this point in time. I do not believe that the votes are in place to pass that. So you have a lot of work to do. And I'll work with you and help you in addressing those issues. Where are your guys' votes on that? I, I, I agree with Dan. I, the concept feels good, but... There's a lot of study the details. details. I agree with that. Excellent. Over here, sir. My parents spent over 50 grand on my private high school education, and I was just wondering how can a conservative ideology justify giving handouts or vouchers to people to pay for private school education but not be willing to do the same for Obamacare or SNAP? Well, there are two different issues, number one, and remember, every taxpayer, whether they have children or not, are paying a significant amount of school taxes. And uh, in fact, there, we have 235,000 students in private school in Texas, about 135,000 in charters, 100,000 on the wait list. And uh, we'll have to debate another day on, on that issue. But uh, it is the people's money. And uh, that's why we have to look at, it. look, we already have school choice in Texas. It's called moving. If you have a car and you have mobility, you move to a better school district. That's why the school districts are growing. A good school district 
That's where people move to. And we have school choice of people who can afford to send their children like you to, to a private school. I want to be sure that everyone, that everyone has the opportunity uh, to have an op the same opportunity as someone who can get in a car and move or someone who can write a check to a private school. And, it, and, and we look, we've had TE grants, uh, equalization grants in colleges. Most students don't even know it. We've been contributing dollars to those of tax dollars to uh, every college student in the state um, to help reduce the cost of tuition. So we've already been doing it at the college level. Anybody else want to tackle that? or? Okay, I'm going to move on just to get to as many questions. Thank you for that question. Over here, okay. sir. My name is Mark Solano. I'm from the University of Houston. And before I left campus, I asked the students and the students' leaders, what is something you want me to say there in Austin? And there was an overwhelming concern that they wanted to know, what can they do? What can they do more to make sure they have a voice in the Texas legislature? You know, students no longer want to go to class than go to their dorm or go home. I mean, I'm looking around now and seeing so much social media power. I know the students of the future are going to use this to their advantage. So I want to know, and I can go back and tell them, what can they do other than writing their congressman to actually have an effect and a say within the Texas legislature? Well, I don't know if writing your congressman helps the, in the legislature so much, but I'd say, you know, tweet, your, tweet or text your legislator uh, would, be, would be one. I'll read it. And uh, that's right. That's right. If, you, if you'll send one right now, I'll monitor whether or not Senator Zaffrey reads it. Restoring financial aid is what they want to talk about. Right. So, so I, but I, I applaud the interest and engagement. And so, uh, for example, last session, to give you an example of, of student engagement, a group from uh, UTMB uh, medical students all got on about three Greyhound buses and came to Austin and descended on the legislature, visited all the, the members, and talked about graduate medical education and their issue. And then they had a little rally at the TMA building. I went over and spoke to them, and they all got on the, got a pizza and got on the buses and went back. And they got, in fact, they got local uh, press in uh, Galveston. Was, was on, on, and so they got a republication of their effort, not just the, the effect they had on us, but it went out over the, the statewide and it also played out on a media story here in Austin. So I think there's plenty of opportunities for engagement, and uh, even more so now with, with obviously new media, you can, you can inject emails. And uh, one time we had a group that uh, had, had uh, jammed up our phone lines you know, with automatic phone. They had a system where they would call their, their uh, say, in your case, a student, and say, do you want to talk directly to your representative, and, they, and you know, someone picks up the phone and says, sure, and all of a sudden they say, well, hold, hold the line, and all of a sudden they would put them on. And so there's all kinds of technologies now, as you all know better than, better than me, to ways to engage. But if you do, if you do come to Austin uh, in, in, a, in a group and have two or three key issues that uh, you're concerned about, whether it's uh, you know, incentivizing outcomes, getting out more efficiently, or tier one research, you want more, more uh, venues in the state where people will stay here, and, and stay in Texas and get educated here, or, or whether it's uh, financial aid issues. I mean, there's a lot of uh, important issues that are going to affect your generation and whether or not this state is an interesting and exciting and growing place like it is today, if it is 20 years, that go to, this, to your experience in college and, and, and university. So I'd, I'd say uh, plenty of opportunities to engage, and I, and I hope you will. And if you want more, you know, come see me afterwards. Senator Zafferini? Where'd the student go? I'm looking for him. University of Houston. There he is. No, no, I'm saying, where is he now? <laughs> I looked at the microphone and the, the lady was standing there. I was looking for him to address him. There's so many things you can do. First of all, get involved with your student government. The student government associations of this state have been absolutely wonderful, in most cases, in expressing themselves and expressing the priorities of the students whom they represent. 
but students who are not involved in student government associations can also be effective. And the very first thing you have to do is talk to your own state representative and your own state senator. Students can visit them and express their needs and their interests and their priorities specifically to them. Second, work with the education and the public education committees in the Senate and House and with the higher education committees in the Senate and House to express your perspective. As chair of the Higher Education Committee for the Senate, I've always worked so well with my counterpart, Representative Branch, who chairs it in the House. And one of the things that we try to do is invite students to testify. My chief of staff, who's with us today, Ray Martinez, will tell you that we can't find students who can come testify. And the reason is they're in class. So how do you leave class, miss all your classes at U of H, and then travel to Austin to wait there for hours to testify? You may not be able to do it, but some of the students can. And it's imperative that you find the students who can come to Austin, not simply to rally. That's important, to come as a group. As Chairman Branch pointed out, that's very effective. But it's equally, if not more effective, if you come regularly. The patter of raindrops, just regularly coming to meet with your state rep, with your senator, and organizing to meet with the members of the education and the higher education committees in both chambers. Waiting for the session is too late. Working during the, the interim is imperative because your needs will include priorities such as financial aid, Texas grants, be on time, work study, all of those issues that are so important to you. If you come and testify, you can use language that your presidents and chancellors and faculty members cannot. You can present your best case scenario for why we should fund your priorities and the difference that we have made through funding and through policies and through programs and decisions on the lives of the students whom you represent. So work through student government, work outside student government, work with your own legislators, work with the members of the committee, rally and come as many times as you can. Speak out. We will hear you. Any other advice, gentlemen? We... No, well, let's grab another question. Okay, I, I want to add one thing to that. I'm sorry, but you know, and this is a, a plug. Do internships. Okay. Right? You guys yes. have government internship program at U of H. I know you do. And go and work for your legislators. When you go to those offices, get an internship. Yeah. I've been walking around here the last couple days. I've seen a dozen kids that have come through the UT internship program that are now working for people on this stage, working for people all across state government. And it's a great way to not only you know, learn in the process, and it helps you solve this problem of, well, I'm in a class. I can't get out of class because most of the internship programs have less on-the-spot contact hours and more opportunity for you to go in and actually learn the process by being inside it. Yep. Over here. Hi, my name's Sydney Granger, and I'm a student in the nation's first-ever developmental education PhD program located at Texas State. Um, within our program, we spend a lot of time talking about the ways in which the work and the research we will be doing can make an impact beyond the walls of our university. So I want to take this opportunity to ask, what ways can we help inform policy decisions as um, developing experts in our field? That's a good question. So what can the developmental educational research community contribute to you all to help the process? It, you know, it's you know, we have all of our hearings in, you know, K through 12 and pub ed, uh, we invite experts or policy experts, you know, panels. You know, there's a, there's a process where you have panels of people coming up and talking about 
um, you know, particular issues, you know, and, and I see my friend Alan Griffin sitting in the front row from Humble, but, you know, if we're talking about transportation allotment, knowing that we're only funding $600 million and we have a $2.5 billion need, that's a problem, right? So we invite experts to come to that. And so, so when, once we determine whether it's on higher or lower, uh, you know, meaning education, or if it's in the Senate or on the House side, we have a particular topic where you have an expertise on. The, the goal is, is to make sure you reach out to the people that are involved uh, with chairman or vice chairman of those committees to identify uh, those particular issues, tracking the bills and finding out what's going on, but making sure that you're putting yourself out there because that's one of the things that we do is making sure that we get people that know what they're talking about, you know, whether it's a, you know, David Anthony on charter schools or David Thompson on school finance or something like that. We make sure that we identify those people because they're the experts. You know, we're not. We're, I mean, we, we, you know, we, we, we look at ourselves and say we, we, we have to make those decisions and we need to be well informed. Chairman Branch? Yeah, on developmental ed, um, that's an area where we're really uh, looking into and so we're, we're seeking out uh, uh, best practices and, and good research, uh, everything these days in education, you can't, you can't drive policy anymore on anecdotes. You've got, you got to have some data and research that shows that, it's, that it works. And um, so, so in that area, I think it's, we're ripe for looking for the best practices. The, T, the, uh, the coordinating board has done some pilot programs, as you know, this whole tuning program where, where you've got community college and higher ed faculty sitting down, working out the learning objectives so that we can get the transfer going, but, but also on the developmental ed, can we concurrently have some four-credit courses going so a student can get some traction on getting credit, but, but then maybe take an immersion developmental ed piece on you know, fractions or you know, something in, in uh, chemistry that, that they're missing, but they mean they're not spending the whole semester you know, uh, not getting any credit for anything. And uh, the other aspect is taking developmental ed, all those students in that, that get lumped into that area and saying, well, who are the people that are really, really behind and who are the people that just need a few fixes and they can get moving and sort of, you know, bifurcating that so that we don't just lump everybody together. What you need to do is walk up and leave your card before you leave. <laughs> I'd like to add yeah. to that that you should turn in your research papers that are related to the interim charges being addressed by the committees in the House and in the Senate because those papers, our, our committee reports will be written in November and December. So any papers, any research that you have related to those interim charges would be welcomed, I'm sure, both in the Senate and in the House, certainly in the higher education committees. I also assume welcomed in the public education committees. I think we have time for one more. So... Ma'am. Hi, I'm Susan Schultz, and I'm a parent of a 10th grader, so that uh, my 10th grader is now going to be uh, subject to the 10, uh, 15 EOCs, uh, end of course exams, and uh, where we've been considering the high stakes testing program that started last year. And it seems like the high stakes testing are not um, really designed to keep kids in school and to make them college ready. On the other, you know, it really does seem that they're designed in a way that more kids are going to be dropping out. So when you say that you are in favor of local control and in favor of making sure that kids are going to be ready and graduating from high school and then being educated and skilled for the workforce, how is that consistent with the high-stakes testing? I read that uh, someone in Germany said that uh, testing is the uh, academic currency that we traded in the world when it comes to education. It's really true. I mean, we, we are 
competing on a global level. And so you have to hold the teachers and the students accountable. Uh, no one, and I, and I believe those bills passed unanimously, I could be wrong, but with the vast majority not unanimously, uh, obviously the intention was not to run students out of school. The intention was to have them better prepared for career and college. But uh, legislators uh, you know, should, should act like businesses uh, when it comes to issues like this. And, and if a business lays out a new product or a service and there are some issues with some of the customers, you uh, owe it to your customers and your business to go back and, and look at that. And so I think we'll go back and look at that. But I, for one, don't want to step back from accountability. But we do need to look at what, what is the best method and this is all part of, of innovation in 2012 and 2013. Uh, we need to look at the innovation of all those areas so that we accomplish what your goals are. Um, so um, I, I totally hear you, and I think the legislature hear you, hears you, but we're, we want to hold our schools and our, and our students accountable. Uh, to do, not to do so would be failing them, but we have to make sure it's the right accountability. So I, I agree with you there. Representative? Um, you know, um, it, it's interesting. I, Last session, I was the only member of at least the House side that had kids in public education, three kids that took the test. And I will tell you that my fourth grader, when, you know, what we're doing to these kids today, um, it, it, in my mind, is, is problematic. Um, and, you know, they should have anxiety. Everybody has anxiety when they take tests and, and go through that process. But what we're doing is, is that... I'm not sure we're doing it the right way. And I'll give you a good example. I had a bill with Representative Hochberg last session that basically uh, allowed for a pilot program. Uh, we ended up not getting it passed. We tried to put it on a, on a bill at the end of the session. But that bill, I thought, was a great pilot program. What it would have done is, I'll give you an example. My daughter, who's, who's very bright, um, if she took the tax test or now the STAR test in fifth grade, she's now in seventh, but in fifth grade and she made 85% or better, then we wouldn't make her take that test in sixth grade. And then we can use those resources um, to, to then take the kids and bring up the kids that are, that are falling behind, because that's really what the issue is. And, and I don't think people are too far apart. You know, uh, uh, there's, there's, there's groups that you know, Bill Hammond represents and uh, Andy Urban. That, that I think everybody's trying to get to that solution. And then you talk about the EOC. You know, if you do recall, you know, we did uh, uh, get the Commissioner of Education to, to waive that rule this year, because it... it it wasn't rolled out properly. You have some school districts that we're going to count towards it, and then you don't get the great. It, it, so we have to go back and think about how we're going to fix that. Because I completely under, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Because, you know, when your wife turns around and looks at you and says, "This is your fault," um, <laughs> you 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 are motivated to try and fix it. So I can just tell you that. So. That's the most important vote. Well, now, now you know where the pressure point is. I want to thank our panelists. This has been a great panel. Thank our audience. Please give them a hand. Thank you. And That's great. I'm very, I'd love to have your feedback on Twitter, at Dan Patrick. It's easy. And on Facebook, dan.patrick.texas. So uh, Same here. If, I'll respond to you within a... The quickest amount of time I can. We get I, be, I believe they're all on... Yeah. I believe yeah, they're all on Twitter. Yes. Texas for Dan. <laughs> to lunch.